It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Ben. Oh my god! <laughs> no, no, keep it in, keep it in. Okay, fine. I, I, there, I, there. I am actually Mark. And I'm Ben. I woke up at 6am today. Uh, yeah, it's it's totally understandable. Um, and who wouldn't want to be me? But um, <laughs> we also have uh, both Hobbs and Panini in the room with us. That's right. They're like completely flopped over on their sides on furniture and floor. Uh, so they're probably not going to be very involved in this recording, but they are cats, so. Yeah, we, uh, we made sure to get, uh, to get both guests on, uh, for this last cat-assisted recording. (sighs) I mean, okay, I guess it's possible that we might be cat-sitting again and recording again in that context in the future, but I don't think we have plans to do so, do we? Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not currently on the schedule, and this has certainly been an extended period of cat-sitting and therefore cat episodes yes so yeah this is the this is the dramatic cat finale we got both cats yep they're being very quiet that's fine we don't need them to make noise people will know they're here and they'll appreciate that yeah yeah i believe it (sighs) so the episode (laughs) yeah yeah so uh today we are doing uh this is gonna be a hopefully a little bit of a short one we're just doing chapters 85 and 86 yeah, we were going to do 87, but it turns out that uh, 87, the Grand Armada, is huge and full. Like, Yeah, this... it's not just that it's a long chapter, it's also just a chapter with a lot going on. So we oh were yeah, like... it's, it's one of the most narrative chapters we've had so far, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so we did both read it, but we were like, eh, let's not. Yeah, we don't want to cram that in with uh, both the Found and the Tale, which I think we'll have plenty to say about. Yeah, yeah. Um... So yeah, let's get started. Um, Chapter 85 is called The Fountain, uh, and it is all about the whale's spout. Yep. The fountain in question is the the mystifying spout of the whale, which, get it, because it makes mist. It's it's mystifying. (laughs) He even even spelled it with an I rather than a a Y, just to make it clear that this isn't mystifying as in mysterious. No, this is mystifying as in... I think it might be an actual word. I don't think it's just a pun he made up. I believe that, but I don't believe he didn't intend the pun. Oh, 100% he intended the pun, yes. Um, Especially because, I mean, the opening of this chapter is talking about how it has been a mystery for 6,000 years. Yeah, and Uh, no one knows how many millions of ages before. Exactly what a whale's spout is, specifically whether it is like a like a jet of water, or if it's just like vapor, like condensation from breath. Yeah, basically, it, when a whale spouts, is it spitting out water it swallowed, or is it 
uh, just exhaling really hard. Uh, by the way, I think we do know the answer to this now. Uh, well, let's save that for the end of the chapter when we can reveal whether or not Ishmael's hypothesis was correct. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, all right. We will I feel not like tell that, you that correctly uh, maintains the air of mystery. <laughs> yeah, we will not tell you until the end of the chapter exactly what a whale's spout is composed of. Uh, according to modern science, which, as we all know, uh, can only begin to scratch at the deepest of mysteries. Yes, 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 yes. According to Ishmael. <sighs> yeah. Also, so... uh, second thing important in this early bit, uh, that down to this blessed minute, 15 and a quarter minutes past 1 o'clock p.m. of the 16th day of December, A.D. 1851, we now know the precise time ishmael was composing this chapter wait i'm sorry does your copy say 1851 because what mine... does your copy say 1850 <gasps> we have a time dysfunction <laughs> aliens must be involved this is impossible oh my god yeah, 1851 is oh. what mine says but power moby dick says 1850 wow okay so um but it, we can stay for certain that 15 and a quarter minutes past 1 o'clock p.m. of the 16th day of September is the anniversary of Ishmael mentioning when he was writing. Again, this one says December. Yeah, I said December. Oh, you said September just now. Ah. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but I, I believe you that I said that. <laughs> but no, December. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. first of all, Obviously, we're going to have to have Whale Day on the 16th of December until perpetuity. Yeah, all right, all right. Although I wouldn't be surprised if there are, like, other dates mentioned in this book as well. Uh, that he was writing? I can't remember any so far, and I really think I would have picked them out. But we'll see if he ever mentions again a different date of writing, or if I can completely facetiously claim that we know down to the exact quarter of a minute when Moby Dick was written. Yeah. In setting. Yes. <sighs> so, uh, we're talking about whale spouts. Um, oh, yeah, right. Yes, yes, We're talking we are. <laughs> about, like, the purpose of the spout, which is, uh, I feel like most people know this, that this is how whales breathe via their blowholes on top of their yep. heads. Uh, Ishmael makes sure to, you know, talk about how, unlike other fish, <laughs> because remember, a whale is a fish, according to Ishmael, Unlike other fish, which have gills, which allow them to remain perpetually underwater and, in fact, drown in the air, a whale has regular lungs, which, I gotta say, if you're gonna argue that they're the only fish with lungs, calling them regular lungs is, I don't know, that just seems wrong to me. Yeah, a little bit. But they have regular lungs like a human being's, uh, and therefore, um, the whale breathes through its uh, blowhole both because... You know, it doesn't. It wants to be able to open its mouth underwater, and because even while swimming along in the up at the top of the sea, the whale's mouth is still mostly underwater. So Ishmael argues that therefore it's very reasonable that its blowhole doesn't intersect with its mouth like in the normal way. It's not like whales don't breathe through their mouths at all; they breathe through their blowhole. Yeah, I think they don't even. Uh, he he says that the windpipe doesn't even connect with the mouth. Yeah, he does later explain that there is like there are some you know, tubes connecting them deeper in the whale, but not yeah. enough to, like, be a real windpipe connection. Yes. There's no free air flow between the mouth and the nose the way there is in, you know, a human being. 
Yes. Also, that just gave me the image of a whale with just like a human nose on top. Uh. Like just, just you go, you're swimming, you're, you know, you're sailing along, and you see this bunch of noses cresting the water. Oh my god! Majestically amazing. Uh, yeah. So, um, whales breathe through their blowholes, and uh, you know, again, as I think most people know, they they do so relatively infrequently. They can take one breath and then dive especially especially the really big whales like sperm whales which well, is... well he argues it's not that they take one breath and then die well yes that's true not one breath but they can fill up their their lungs effectively yeah they and can... and not just uh, and i think the way that he talks about this uh is is basically accurate that it's not just that they fill up their lungs but also that they oxygenate, oxygenate their blood oxygenate their blood uh quickly um and yeah. uh, and and thoroughly yeah, Ishmael has this whole great little description of how, you know, if I say that in any creature, breathing is only a function indispensable to vitality, inasmuch as it withdraws from the air a certain element, which, being subsequently brought into contact with the blood, imparts to the blood its vivifying principle, I do not think I shall err, though I may possibly use some superfluous scientific words. What scientific words are that, Ishmael? You just described it very, like, broadly. Yeah. Imparts, vivifying, uh, element. Oh, element, definitely. Actually, you know, I don't know if... Is it Corbusier? I don't know if oxygen has been isolated and, and described well, yet Well, so time. he does use the word oxygenated mm, in that this does, paragraph. So that I, does strongly imply that we are... He is, in fact, on the cutting edge of... Uh, biochemical science for the 1850s yeah yeah and also even if oxygen the element it, the process he is describing is obviously the oxygenation of blood. yes the if you if he uses the term oxygenation and that means that oxygen has been isolated i just can never remember when oxygen was isolated which is an important moment because it's like there's a huge important thing about this in the history of science and also a bunch of arguments about whether we should count, say, phlogiston, the idea that there is something in air which burns and which is like the, the, the important component of combustion, uh, that there's a fluid and energy or something, a, a thing there called phlogiston, which is burned. And, you know, later oxygen has a lot in common with phlogiston. It's crucial to combustion um, and oxygenation. But is it the same thing? And so there's a whole argument about that. That Ishmael isn't getting into it all, so I shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so, um, you know, basically uh, he explains that whales uh, are able to, like, oxygenate their blood sufficiently for their entire dives in, like, one relatively brief surfacing interval. Yeah, he... Um, um... You know, suggests that it follows that if all the blood in a man could be aerated with one breath, he might then seal up his nostrils and not fetch another for a considerable time. He's just, he's describing holding your breath, but in a, you know, the more developed form that a whale does, where having ox having oxygenated large quantities of blood, the body can then run off that for a while. Yeah, yeah, and he, he talks about one, um, like, sort of anatomical detail that, mm -hmm. that assists with this, which is that, uh... That there is a, I'll just quote this, between his ribs and on each side of his spine, he is supplied with a remarkable involved cretin labyrinth of vermicelli-like vessels, which vessels, when he quits the surface, are completely distended with oxygenated blood. So kind of a, I guess like a, a storage space of blood. And, and it's, yeah. there's a couple of other interesting details about this that I just found out when I was looking up yeah. whale anatomy, which is that they also have, first of all, they just have a lot of blood. Like, yeah. 
a way, I, they have a greater percentage of blood per their like I guess their body, body mass. mass. That uh, would explain things like them not having a um, valvular uh, a circulatory system. Yeah, um, something like that. And and then they also just have like a high proportion of uh, hemoglobin, which is mm-hmm. the 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 molecule that like binds to oxygen. I believe it's also what makes blood red. But I'm not yes. positive. Yeah, because it, it has iron in it. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, they also have a high proportion of uh, myoglobin, which is a different chemical, a, a different molecule um, that binds to oxygen in, I think, muscular tissue. Ah. So, like, they store oxygen in other parts of their body as well as in their blood. So, like, um, a submarine, they're just absolutely packed with oxygen in various forms just yeah. to make sure that they have enough. Yes, and they also have various... Uh, they can, like, cut off the flow of oxygen to non-essential body parts. Oh, wow. Yeah. God, that must give, like, amazing pins and needles. <laughs> like, because that's what causes pins and needles, when you don't have yeah. enough blood flow, and therefore not enough oxygenation, and then when it all gets the oxygen again, it sends a bunch of signals to your nerves that hurt. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, on the other hand, it's, like, normal for them, so perhaps they're adapted to it, but... Yeah, but also, evolution is mean. <laughs> Yeah, fair and, enough. And does not actually care how you feel as long as you function. Would it be fascinating to learn someday if whales experience regular pins and needles, but I don't know that we're ever going to know that. No, one. no, that that not until the uh, the uh, Posadists figure out how to communicate with the sea comrades. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's um that's whale blood and uh... <laughs> sorry, just that's whale blood for you. <laughs> and uh, he he also. Um... Uh, points out um, as kind of like further evidence for this uh, understanding of how whale breath and whale blood oxygenation are connected that um, whales uh, have like a have sort of regular habits of surfacing and breathing Um, yeah they it's what the um what fishermen phrase having his spoutings out um yeah, and and it's uh, it, it's not that there's like a single consistent pattern that every whale follows, mm-hmm. but that a given whale will consistently follow its own pattern. So, uh, in the example he gives, if uh, if the um, if the whale stays down eleven minutes or stays up, oh oh minutes. sorry, stays yeah, up yeah, so eleven this minutes. Is, all of the whales can dive dive generally for about an hour is what he suggests, but but a whale. Uh, a whale that has a sort of surfacing period of 11 minutes will always surface for 11 minutes. Yes, and we'll always, uh, like, in his example, if it if it jets 70 times, so breathes 70 times, then it will always, at least when possible, uh, jet 70 times in that 11 minutes. Um, obviously, if it's being attacked by humans, that may not be possible, but it will almost always try to, like, come back up to get up to that yeah. number of breaths. Basically, supposedly. he's... he's He's theorizing, and, you know, this seems like a thing he's correct about, both because some of the modern anatomical stuff seems to, you know, agree with him, but also because this is very practical. Because a whale being capable of going underwater for an hour and swimming away where the boat can't see it, in theory, if a sperm whale could just do that whenever it wanted... Uh, and didn't have this need to fully oxygenate its blood to the fullest of its ability every time it comes up, if it didn't have that sort of reflex, then the leviathan would be... uh, I just said the leviathan. The sperm whale would be 
incredibly uh, hard to capture. It would just swim down as soon as it's attacked, stay down for as long as possible, and then come and come up only as barely necessary to breathe. But because it's always going to try and come up for its full spoutings, um, that means that once you catch a whale in its uh, breathing pattern, you've got a pretty solid amount of time that it's going to feel like it needs to be up at the top for you to kill it. Yeah, and, and Ishmael basically says this, that like it clearly whales have to do this because it's so dangerous yeah. for them to do so when they're being hunted. So, Or, you know, in a, in a sort of a modern perspective, you might say that it's not so much that whales have to do it as that whales, you know, evolve to have this particular pattern, so it's very hard for them to ignore it even when, you know, a predator such as, you know, is not evolutionarily something they'd have been particularly right. prepared for. I don't think there's any other, like, predator that attacks whales on the surface the way human whalers do. Yeah. And that's a mere, you know, at most, what is it, with the Bosque, like 500, 600 years of predation mm-hmm. versus millions of years of evolution. Now, I will say uh, a couple things. First of all, Ishmael has made it quite clear that he believes, <sighs> and I think he's probably correct, that whales understand that you know, human boats are dangerous oh, to yeah, them yeah. and, like, know when they're being hunted. Yeah, which is why the, it being, like, a... Which is why I think it's important that we think about it in terms of, like, a reflex that they find very hard to ignore. That they're finding it very hard to make a conscious decision to just swim away. So the other thing that I was about to say is that actually, supposedly, just according to this general online research on whale anatomy okay. that I was doing, whales do have conscious control of their breath. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they... Like, it doesn't seem to be and and perhaps that really just extends to the fact that they can decide when to surface Mm -hmm. um so it may be that like once they have surfaced they have a reflex to breathe a certain number of times in the way that ishmael is describing but um but uh i think the question of exactly how much control a whale exerts over how much it breathes when it surfaces is not I, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. We'd, we'd have to interview a whale who has been hunted by 19th century whalers and be like, so why did you make these decisions? To which the whale, who's presumably sitting in small jars in the pantry so as to fuel the uh, various conveniences, says nothing. Y- yes. In fact, the whale says nothing is kind of an important element of this book. Yes. Uh, so, uh... Yeah, Ishmael also takes this opportunity to point out that for this reason, uh, for all that, you know, I, he's been talking about how we bring Leviathan up with our fish hooks and, you know, the, the spears of the peckwater terrifying to this, you know, creature which God said to Job, canst thou uh, draw out Leviathan with a hook? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's not so much the human hunters and their skill as it is the necessity of the whale's biology that drives it onto their spears. Yes. Uh, so yes, uh, one, one detail that he brings up, um, is the, the possibility that if, uh, that the whale may in fact be, like, drawing in water through the spout hole, Mm -hmm. um, that being, you know, this open question that he suggested at the beginning of the chapter, um, uh, which he also proposes as, you know, if that is true, this would be the reason why uh, the whale doesn't really have a sense of smell. Um, which, I mean, uh, this is interesting, actually, to me, because... Um, yeah, how would he know? Yeah, like, that's the thing. We do now know that whales do not have a sense of smell because we've, like, dissected their brains, and they don't have, <laughs> like, olfactory 
uh, clusters or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They that, don't have that, the parts of the brain that in other mammals are for the sense of smell. Or processing. That's, Which, I mean, and, and it's basically for this reason, right? Because scent is not, like, in the ocean, scent is not, like, available. I mean, on the other hand, sharks famously can scent blood miles away. It's it's not, the scent, the sense of scent maybe is not super useful the way mammals do it. Maybe it's, oh, I don't know if sharks scent with their gills. I'm obviously thinking of the scene in Finding Nemo where a shark shark obviously inhales through a nose to scent blood, but that's a cartoon, and I have no idea if a shark tastes blood on its gums, scents it it through its gills. I don't know how a shark works that way. Yeah, I mean, I I will say that I think that the way that scent particles dissipate through the air— just doesn't work underwater. I mean, it would work eventually at a greater distance, at a, or sorry, at a greater um, time period, because it's just Brownian motion of particles moving through like a, a compound. Yeah, I guess. I... Like air is much lighter, and so I imagine that a scent would travel much quicker in air than in water. But I can't imagine that you know chemicals, particles, chemicals moving through water can't be sensed. Uh, yeah, all right. Well, I'm just looking this up about the specific case of sharks. Um, on Science Focus, the uh, BBC Science Magazine website? Huh. Yeah, okay. So they, they can, uh, it, it does seem like they do, in fact, smell. Also, it's a very Ishmaelian thing here to say, which is, sharks can smell blood from up to around a quarter of a mile away, which means it's a myth that they can smell it a mile away. I'm just sort of like... A quarter mile is pretty impressive to me. Yeah, 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 that's fair. So, okay, yes. Clearly, it is functional to have a sense of smell in the water. However, whales, whales don't. Whales don't, yes. Um. So, I don't know why. Maybe it's that whales, like, don't react to whale blood in the water or various things that Ishmael thinks by scent you'd be you'd react to. But he doesn't elaborate on it. Yeah, yeah. Um. He, he just insists that they're... Uh, not olfactory that they can't smell things yeah um also something that he mentioned earlier that i want to very briefly return to is um that comparing uh humans to whales he says that in man breathing is incessantly going on one breath serving for two or three pulsations only so that whatever other business he has to attend to waking or sleeping breathe he must or die he will but the sperm whale breathes only about one-seventh, or Sunday, of his time. And just that idea of Sunday breathing is very funny to me. Just like, you know, end of the week, it's the weekend. Oh, yeah. Okay, time to breathe. <laughs> yeah, it definitely... <laughs> Would you please not make noises like that on the podcast? Uh, it definitely seems like Ishmael... In but the- it's Sunday. <laughs> I need to breathe. I have to have my spoutings out, Mark. <laughs> It definitely seems in that passage like Ishmael's kind of being like, damn, humans constantly breathing. Am I right? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, no, no olfactory sense, but uh, very much more impressive breathing to Ishmael than a human breathing. Yeah. Uh, he also has the very goofy line, like, he has no proper olfactories, but what does he want of them? No roses, no violets, no cologne water in the sea. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's true that, like, uh, I don't think that, say, like, I don't think that a lot of things signal via scent in the ocean, you know? Yeah, yeah that's... Like, I, I do think that smell particles 
have a more difficult time uh like dissolving through water than through air yeah no like like i said water is a heavier medium uh seawater is not going to uh propagate things the way that uh, air is all the cats are sitting in two different chairs like just across the room from each other it's very cute it is really cute ah <sighs> Uh, so anyway, sorry, whales, whale <laughs> smells, smell whales. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that we really can't, because we know that some animals, sharks, the hounds of the sea, except that they're jerks, um, as Ishmael put it, um, do smell underwater. And the fact that whales don't is to me sort of like, well, I don't know what evolutionary forces conspired to ensure whales can't smell or what, you know, cosmic and mysterious purposes, uh, this ensures I'm willing to believe Ishmael, and modern science agrees, but I just don't think that it's... I don't think there's an easy answer like, oh, well, smell doesn't work underwater, because... Yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, uh, then uh, the next thing that he says uh, is is that... Um, that whales uh, do not have voices. Uh, yes, he, he talks about how um, the whale's windpipe closes up to uh, prevent water getting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he describes it as having locks like a canal, and therefore, um, uh, since his windpipe doesn't attach to his mouth and it seals up, uh, you can't, um, you can't very well accuse him of having a voice, because then you'd be saying he talks through his nose. Yeah, which, I mean, like this. The, in this case, he is totally wrong. Uh, whales do, in fact, have all kinds of... Vocalizations. Yeah, um, and, like, uh, they do, I think make the noises well they they make the noises using the air that they receive from their blowholes uh but they i guess kind of i mean in a sperm whale at least they just vibrate it well yes but also the sound goes out through the spermaceti organs oh right through the melon yeah and and like possibly those have some or not i think we know that those organs have something to do with how they make and like modulate their echolocation their echolocation sounds yeah so um so so whales are voiced just not in a way humans can hear basically at all yes and they don't uh you know they don't like, I guess you could say that they talk through their noses in the sense that the air that is used comes from the nose. But it's like, they make these voices. No, they're basic, They're talking through their, like, weird protruding foreheads, like a sci-fi, uh, like a B-movie alien communicating with its giant brain. Yes, and, like, they, uh, I think this is actually kind of interesting. They, you know, they do this when they're underwater. So, um, they have, like, basically they circulate air internally. To move oh. it past the parts of their oh, anatomy like, that make the noise. To move it through a vocal cord. Yeah, um, the, the the thing that uh, that sperm whales use to make noise is like this sort of like bone clapper. That's wow, why they that's make why they like make clicks. clicks no- that's fascinating. Instead of like a a you know um, a set of fleshy cords that vibrate, they have like a snapping and crackling uh, like bone thing clacking against itself yeah yeah other other whales uh some other whales have um vocal, vocal cord usually that's used for singing yeah yeah whereas sperm whales do not sing they uh beatbox <laughs> to find prey <laughs> they click it is called click <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh but he, ishmael does use this as a um jumping off point for a thematic point which is that uh, well, he asks, what is the whale to say? Do you want to read this bit? Yeah. 
But then again, what has the whale to say? Seldom have I known any profound being that had anything to say to this world, unless forced to stammer out something by way of getting a living. Oh, happy that the world is such an excellent listener. Uh, which is... I think that's very funny at this point in the novel, right? Uh, because Ishmael is basically saying, like, yeah, people who have a lot to say... Uh, don't have a lot to say. Yeah, are, are like, don't know what they're talking about. Um, yeah, and that profound... Like, I feel like knowledge and profundity are not quite the same thing in Ishmael. Like, well, sure. Profundity is, like, insight. I think he definitely thinks that someone who talks a lot, such as himself, might know a lot of things, but doesn't necessarily have deep meaning to communicate. Whereas central to the whale since the Sphinx chapter, really, has been this idea of a, a voiceless immensity of profound and deep knowledge, but that can never speak and share those secrets. Mm. That's been sort of the deal since Ahab talked about what the whale has seen and could never speak of. Yes. And probably before that as well. I do like his little mention here that, uh, you know, forced to stammer out something by way of getting a living, this idea that there are people who, in deep profundity, would never speak to anyone else and would, you know, keep that, you know, mystic silence. But the world is such a good listener, by which, it mean, by which he means that, like, society requires you to do something to make money and live, that it can force people into communicating with each other. Yeah. <sighs> but the, um, it's interesting, because he is... On the one hand, bemoaning the various sort of frailties of the whale that allow it to be hunted or that, you know, seem pitiable to him. But on the other hand, he's constantly speaking of its, you know, of the profundity and depth and power and secrecy with locked within the whale that even the whalers cannot get at. Yeah. Uh, the next sort of uh, question of whale anatomy is about... Uh... You know, we are we are coming back. Does again. does water go in the pipe as well? Yes, talking about the um, the what does he call it? The uh, the spouting canal. Yes, um, which the... I think basically is you know the windpipe. Yeah, um, the, the tube going from the spout to the lungs. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, he uh, he does sort of speculate that that maybe if it does spout out water, that would be in order to get rid of water that the sperm whale has taken in via its mouth while feeding yeah um, the idea is basically you got to get rid of the water somehow maybe that does inject into the pipe so that it can be blasted out with the breath uh but he also does point out that uh when the sperm whale is eating and you know might be taking water in through its mouth it's far beneath the surface and unable to spout uh so Maybe that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And also, he says that the sperm whale doesn't uh, doesn't spout sort of haphazardly. He breathes and then spouts and then breathes and then spouts if, if you're not bothering him and just watching him. So that means that he's breathing, that the spouting appears to just be a normal exhalation, not like a, a cough or a throat clearing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then fundamentally he's like, well, uh, why all this debate? Like, I've seen whales spout. Why can't I just say what they are? Well, uh, it's actually very difficult to know just from looking at it. Yep. Um, he specifically says, my dear sir, in this world, it is not so easy to settle these plain things. I have ever found your plain things the naughtiest of all. Like, naughtiest as in, like, tangled and, and uh, unclear. Um, yeah. 
he's, he's effectively, again, taking this position that the world is deep and profound and tangled and things which don't speak have the most important things to say and things that seem obvious are, in fact, hiding deep mysteries. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, he sort of goes on to explain how it's like, uh, you, you, you really can't uh, get, like, a close-up look at a whale spout, uh, like, even if you do happen to be quite near a whale when it's spouting, uh, that whale is necessarily in a prodigious commotion. Um, yep, yep, and there's water cascading all around him, and uh, the spout itself is surrounded by just the surge up from the whale surfacing. Uh, and there's also the fact that, like, it's entirely possible, you know, uh, there's, there's water on top of the whale's head. Yes. And so it could... Any water that you see could easily be not so much water that the whale had, like, taken into its body, but just water that's being pushed up off the whale. Yeah, yeah. especially since there's a little divot around the spout, as you'd expect. So there could easily be some water in there that gets blasted up by the by the uh, breath. Yes. Um, uh, he does mention that... Um, you know, even when tranquilly swimming through the midday sea in a calm, with his elevated hump sun-dried as a dromedary's in the desert, even then the whale always carries a small basin of water on his head, as under a blazing sun you will sometimes see a cavity in a rock filled up with rain. And I think that's just kind of cute. Yeah. Also, it's the second time he's mentioned camels this chapter. Previously, he argued that, uh, like a camel stores up water in extra stomachs to cross uh, deserts, that's the that's the kind of way you should think of the whale storing up oxygenated blood. Uh, which is funny because I think Power Moby Dick said that camels don't actually do that, which I no. don't know. It's just that camels are extremely, uh, like, they can carry a bunch of, uh, I think, fat in their hump, and they're extremely, you know efficient in using water but they don't have just like a bunch of water bag stomachs yes that that's correct um and a further reason by the way which uh a further reason why people do not know and like are not able to uh determine what's what the spout is made of even though they have been able to like see it up close uh, is that the spout itself is really dangerous um, and you don't want to get close to it and to, to touch it, uh, because, I mean, it's interesting, it seems like he's su suggesting- He's claiming it's acidic. Yes, he is suggesting that it is, like, that it will burn your skin. Yeah, I, I have no idea how much to credit this, but he says, uh, should I read it, or just- Yeah, go ahead. For when coming into slight contact with the outer, vapory shreds of the jet, which will often happen, your skin will feverishly smart from the acridness of the thing so touching it. And I know one who, coming into still closer contact with the spout, whether with some scientific object in view or otherwise, I cannot say, the skin peeled off from his cheek and arm. Wherefore, among whalemen, the spout, the spout is deemed poisonous. They try to evade it. And I'm blown away by this. Like, the idea that the whale spout is, like, scouring away flesh and, like, causing it to blister and peel is horrifying and just, like, really? Is how? Why? Yeah, I don't think this can possibly be true in the sense that I do not believe that whale spouts are chemically caustic. Uh, I, I think that, like, it's an immense pressure. Yes, it's possible that it is literally just that this is like getting, you know, pressurized air or a jet blown at you and that'll smart and sting and burn the skin. I just, I think he's, I, I hope he's overstating it. I... 
I mean, okay, I didn't look this one up because I thought it was so implausible, but do you want me to look it up? (laughs) I mean, a little bit. Okay, all right. Uh, Whale spout acidic? Yeah, sure. I I, I can't imagine they are. Um, Here's what's actually inside a whale's blowhole on businessinsider.com. Well, don't, don't, we can't spoil it. We're not at the end of the, end of it yet. Uh, But apparently it is... um, pretty hot air in the spout like the vapor the vapor is pretty hot but it's un no this article doesn't really cover much at all this is just like a recent business article yeah i was hoping it would link to like a better source but it no it it really uh, doesn't yeah this is this is not a useful yeah i think uh yeah this it's possible that this is just straightforwardly such a non-issue in the modern day that no one's really studying it. Yeah, I I don't I don't think that uh certainly no one's talking about the idea in these like articles or scientific studies that you've pulled up so far. No one's mentioning, by the way, whales spouts, very acidic or very dangerous, burns things. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that that is true. I, I think that the injuries Ishmael is talking about must have been caused by pressure. Or, you know, maybe, uh, uh, like, myths. Yeah, or even just, like, it's a pretty rough-and-tumble time getting near enough to a whale's spout to experience it that way. Like, yeah. I, I think there's a... There's a complexity here because I don't want to just dismiss any of Ishmael or Ishmael's buddy's whaling experience because that's kind of central to the, like, one of the epistemological positions Ishmael is taking is, like, pro-empiricist, experiential and, you know, sort of the people who actually work with this and, and labor on it and are involved with it have more direct knowledge of the thing than people who have a purely academic, like, theoretical perspective, which is what we're coming from. Sure. But on the other hand, um, nothing seems to be backing this up, so I am left in a in a confusion of uh, attempting to have more, like, uh, you know, proletarian epistemologies, and <laughs> also just, I don't think whales can burn you with their spout. Yeah. Well, also, okay, so here's the thing. In the next paragraph, uh, Ishmael states, you know, his... His opinion on the is it is it vapor or is it water question is that it is vapor. Um, so he is basically saying, yeah, sperm whales just breathe out air, and the the spout that we see is some combination of like condensation in that breath mm-hmm. and also you know just like water that's erupting into the air from the spout's like socket. Yes, uh, and. Uh, so, I mean, if he believes that, then it is a little hard for me to understand. I mean, well, what do we think Ishmael believes about sufficiently, like, agitated air? Yeah, okay, I guess. Like, I don't think that... I think Ishmael's perfectly willing to believe that there's something in, like, the exhalation of a whale that would burn things, but it's still just exhalation. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. Also, you know, he's, um... He does say... Another thing I have heard it said, and I do not much doubt it, that if the jet is fairly spouted into your eyes, it will blind you. And I'm like, if the jet was burning off your skin, I'm pretty sure if it was spouted into your eyes, it would kill you. But I totally believe that getting hit by the, like, pressure punch of a whale's uh, jet would absolutely blind you. Like, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That seems believable to me. Yeah. 
Uh, now, of course, we should explain Ishmael's explicit reasoning for why he believes the mist-slash-vapor theory is not because uh, of any of the anatomical things considered so far. Yes, uh... No, no, this is, um, he is impelled by considerations touching the great inherent dignity and sublimity of the sperm whale. Uh, Do you want to go into that? Yeah, sure. Um, he says, uh, I am convinced that from the heads of all ponderous, profound beings, such as Plato, Pyrrho, the Devil, Jupiter, Dante, and so on, there always goes up a certain semi-visible steam while in the act of thinking deep thoughts. Yeah, it's, um, it's a lot. He just thinks that, like, you know those, like, heat shimmers you get with air? He thinks that just happens when people are thinking super hard. That yes. they just, that their their thoughts just bloom from their, uh, from their skull and burn through the air and, and you know, uh, contort it. And thus, the, uh, eva- the breath and vapor of the sperm whale is not just, you know the circulation of air no no this is also a sign and hallmark of the deep secret contemplation locked within that unspeaking whale's skull and in fairness i do think ishmael is is joking around here and a little bit yeah making fun of himself because uh so he he claims uh as as evidence for this uh deep thoughts generate steam thought uh, claim while composing a little treatise on eternity, I had the curiosity to place a mirror before me, and ere long saw reflected there a curious, involved worming and undulation in the atmosphere over my head. The invariable moisture of my hair, while plunged in deep thought, after six cups of hot tea in my thin shingled attic of an August noon, this seems an additional argument for the above supposition. So he's like, yeah, the fact that I get a little bit sweaty when I've drunk six cups of hot tea in the middle of August. In a not very insulated uh, attic. Yeah, surely that means that some sort of like yeah, thought that, steam is... That's, that's clearly a joke about himself not being very profound, at the very least. Like, yes. I've got also, I gotta say, Ishmael, why are you drinking six cups of hot tea in an afternoon in the middle of August? Like, at, by noon in the middle of August? That sounds hellish. <laughs> Why do this to yourself? Do you need that much caffeine to write Moby Dick? Okay, yeah. He's thirsty. Drink water! Hydrate, Ishmael! Maybe the water is bad and he has to boil it. Then let it cool. I'm just saying, Ishmael, this is... This is not helpful. You're overheating. Yeah. Your feverish brains are overheating. (laughs) Ah, but... He does go on to sort of discuss how it, you know, how noble it would seem if we think of this, you know, mighty, misty monster, um, you know, sailing along uh, with, you know, engendered by his incommunicable contemplations uh, of canopy of vapor um, and glorified by a rainbow, you know, as though God himself, as though the divine had set a seal upon the, uh, upon the whale, is how Ishmael puts it. Yeah. Um... And, uh... He uses this as a jumping-off point to talk about intuition. Yes, yes. Um, uh, referring to the, the rainbows that might be seen in a whale's spout. And so, through all the thick mists of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my fog with a heavenly ray. And for this I thank God. For all have doubts, many deny. But doubts or denials, few along with them have intuitions. 
doubts of all things earthly, and intuitions of some things heavenly. This combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye. Yeah, so this is, you know, Ishmael talking a little bit about how he thinks about thinking and how he, you know, is, uh, you know, plagued by doubts and skepticisms and interesting thoughts, but also has this, like, deep emotional resonance with these sort of divine ideas that are, uh, you know, around him. As we've seen, we've seen Ishmael's heterodoxy, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. I definitely don't think it is a surprise at this point in the narrative to learn that Ishmael feels like he is sometimes, you know, uh, enlightened by, like, shafts of of heavenly intuition. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that accords with the way that we've seen him thinking and, and, uh, like, the raptures that we've seen him in at times. Mm -hmm. He's also presenting the idea that uh, simple sort of belief and uh, confidence is not so interesting as uh, having doubt, but also being struck by these religious uh, sentiments. Yeah. <sighs> All right, shall we? Uh... Sure. I just want to say that both of the cats are now sleeping, so uh, the cat hosts are probably not going to be hugely involved, but know that they're soft, fluffy, and presumably uh, I don't think they're super profound, so there's not a lot of steam coming from their little heads. But <laughs> they're, you know, dreaming cat dreams in the vicinity. Yes, yes. We've lulled them to sleep with our, our uh, beautiful voices. Mm. I, I, I'd be surprised. They fall asleep with for a lot of reasons. <laughs> they are cats. That's they true. are cats, exactly. Huh. Anyways, chapter 86, The Tale. That's tail with an I, not tail with an E. <laughs> yes. Uh, we just talked about the whale spout. Now we're going to talk about its tail. Um, yep. And uh, it is uh, is at least 50 square feet in size. It's more than 20 feet across. It is divided into two flukes, which are less than an inch in thickness at the tips. Um, yep. Uh, he's very excited about the tale. He talks about how he's going to celebrate it in this chapter. Yes, yes. Uh, in no living thing are the lines of beauty more exquisitely defined than in the crescentic borders of these flukes. You know, that's that's interesting. Is he, is he arguing that it's an OG? Like a the lines of beauty, uh, or maybe that's only in the... There, there's a specific kind of like arc that in architecture is called the line of beauty. Or like a curve of a particular kind. Oh, maybe. I, I'm not familiar with the term you just used. OG? O-G-E-E, I think. I'll, I'll bet you can Google it. Yeah, yeah. But it would be interesting to me to see if he intended the uh, mm, uh, a I, double I, continuous S-shaped curve. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Uh, and It's I, possible that it's only some particular people who have strong opinions about the OG uh, call it the line of beauty, but it does seem fluke-like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I think that... Okay, let's look at... There's a Wikipedia article for line of beauty as well. Um, ah, yes, it's it's a theory that the serpentine, the S-shape, which an OG is a form of, is the most beautiful line in some ways. Yeah. Uh, 
Wikipedia describes the line of beauty as a term in a theory in art or aesthetics used to describe an S-shaped curve, a serpentine line, appearing within an object as the boundary line of an object or as a virtual boundary line formed by the composition of several objects. So yeah, I think the I think he is arguing that the shape of a whale's fluke is a perfect serpentine. Yes. I mean, you know, fair enough. Like, yeah, I I immediately see what is uh, meant by that. Yeah, I do in fact think that like whales' tails look very elegant. Yeah, no, I I I'm perfectly willing to agree with that statement. I think that uh I think that the idea that in no living thing are the lines of beauty more exquisitely defined than the crescentic borders of these flukes is a lot. It's a big claim. I I would need to compare a lot of uh, animals, and including many insects and butterflies, to decide if that S-shape is in fact at its best in the fluke. Sure, sure. I'm willing to believe that it's a competitor. (laughs) Uh, Also, I will have to try and convince my cat to make an S. I mean, it is true that, like, when cats hold their tails in, like, a S-curve, that's also very elegant. Yes, yes. I mean, look, what we're really arguing for here is that the line of beauty is a reasonable aesthetic theory, but we don't know if whales truly are the best at it. (laughs) (sighs) Um, Anyway, back to uh, anatomical details. (laughs) Um, Whales' tails are composed of, like, three layers. Um, They have an upper and a lower layer of um, long, horizontal, like, muscular fibers. Sinews, Um, specifically. Yeah. And then a middle, uh, a middle layer of shorter fibers that run uh, like crosswise. So I'm—I'll be honest. I can't tell if he means that the middle layer runs like vertical, where the uh, others are horizontal, or if it's like like it's you know sort of at right angles, or if the middle layer is directly between the two outer layers. Like, do you see what I mean? Uh... Like. Like, are the fibers of the middle layer versus the side layers, like, crosshatched? Like, if you could see them both at once, they'd cross each other like like a T-shape, a junction? Uh-huh. Or if the middle layer goes up and down between the two upper and lower layers, mm. stick holding them together? I, I, I see what you're getting at. Um, I don't really know. I mean, this is one of those... I'm going to see if I can find some kind of anatomical diagram that of, like, the muscles unlikely. in a sperm whale's tail. That but... seems unlikely, especially to this detail. This is the kind of thing that a whaler would have strong opinions on, but, you know, wouldn't necessarily emerge for non-whalers. Yeah, I, I'm not really finding useful pictures Certainly here. Certainly not I... on Google Image Shirts. I wouldn't go deeper. Yeah, I was definitely picturing them as cross-hatched in the way you were describing Yeah, yeah. All I'm saying is that I don't know which it is. Yeah. Um, I just know that the second one is very short, running crosswise between the outer layers as the middle one. Also, he compares this to how in old Roman walls, the middle layer will furnish a curious parallel to the thin course of tiles, always alternating with the stone in those wonderful relics of the antique. Which, I have no idea what Roman construction looks like in that particular respect. I, I have mean, no idea if it's even particularly strong. Well, he is, he is correct that, like, uh, ancient Roman walls typically have, like, uh, two... Like facings, facings and then a, a part in the center, um, which is like, okay, I'll just read what Power Moby Dick says. Walls built by the ancient Romans usually consisted of brick or stone facings surrounding a cavity filled with rubble and mortar or packed clay. Um, so the center is not like a specific structure. It's just that there is a, a center that's maybe a bit more flexible and is just sort of filled. It's fill. Yes. 
that's very different from how he was trying to what he was communicating when he yeah, said that yeah thin course of tiles yeah, does make it sound a little bit more like arranged yes that made me think that there was like a, a layered stack of tiles in the center that did something in particular yeah i mean i also you know i would be willing to believe that this method of construction is relatively strong just because yeah. i mean there's there are still roman walls yeah yeah no I, i'm willing to believe it uh in any case um he also uh says that the um whole bulk of the leviathan is knit over with a warp and woof of muscular fibers and filaments which passing on either side the loins and running down into the flukes insensibly blend with them and largely contribute to their might so there's also as well as the flukes themselves being sinewy there's the muscles that go down the tail and like around it and actually like drive it yeah, basically, like, the entire muscular body of the whale culminates in the tail. Yes. Also, I love this sentence right here. It's so good. Could annihilation occur to matter? This were the thing to do it. Yep. If anything is going to destroy matter utterly, whale tails. Just smack it super hard. Yeah. And, um. you know, he's clearly speaking to some extent from the experiences he'll talk about more in this chapter of just the whale's tail being incredibly deadly in the um in the fishing ground remember there was that story was it the um was the town hoe what which was the one with gabriel on it that was um no that it was um oh what was the goni no 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 what what was the what was the ship with gabriel called (sighs) give me a second um i got a it definitely the jeroboam thank you yes that we were never gonna get that it's, it's just a weird name. It's biblical. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Jeroboam story included a man being struck utterly with the tail, but only his soul was removed. <laughs> yes. His life was annihilated only. Um, so I think Ishmael gives the whale's tail a certain terrible annihilatory power in his understandings, in part from experience. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and he uh. also uh, describes it as uh, extraordinarily graceful. Mm. Um, which which leads him to a series of comparisons to kind of like artistic epitomes of grace and strength. Uh, yes, he's uh, he's talking about like incredible uh, statues and incredible gymnasts as one. Yeah, so his 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 examples are uh, he refers to the carved Hercules, uh, which Power Moby Dick suggests is a specific statue, the Farnese Hercules, uh, excavated from Pompeii. Um, uh, and he also refers to uh, the naked corpse of Goethe. Yeah, Goethe's um, corpse, supposedly, when it was, uh, like, um, considered by, uh, you know, the, um, I guess this would have been, I have no idea who Eckerman was. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, Power Moby Dick says that this is Johann Peter Eckerman, a German poet who was a friend, follower, and biographer of the better-known poet Goethe. Okay, so he's the biographer, and when he looks at the corpse, he was like, oh my god, his chest is huge. He's just incredibly muscular. Was, quote, overwhelmed with the massive chest of the man that seemed as a Roman triumphal arch. So, and there's there's also a line earlier that I think helps communicate what's going on here, which is, um, nor does this, its amazing strength, at all tend to cripple the graceful flexion of its motions, where infultiness of ease undulates through a titanism of power so he's trying to express that like you know this incredible power and strength of the whale does not in any way make it ungraceful in fact that power only enhances its grace yes uh yeah and uh and he even refers to the 
the painting of uh, God the Father uh, on the roof of the si- or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, in contrast to uh, typical <laughs> yeah. Renaissance paintings of Christ. Well, he does. He doesn't say that the typical Renaissance paintings of Christ are bad. In fact, no. he says that they've truly captured the the essence of Christ. It's just that he describes them as the soft, curled, hermaphroditical Italian pictures. Yep. The um, so destitute as they are of all brawniness, hint nothing of any power but the mere negative, feminine one of submission and endurance, which in all hands it is conceded form the peculiar practical virtues of his teachings. So getting weird and heterodox again about this. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's it, it is. This is just great. Like on the one hand, he is utterly. Uh, he, he is totally delighted and amazed by Michelangelo's ripped God. Yeah, no, he's just like, oh man, look at those pecs on God. Look at God's abs. Look at God's curled biceps. God lifts, man. <laughs> but then at the same time, he's like, all right, all right. And I recognize that Christ is like... A uh, soft boy? Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, look, I he's going a little further than that, Ben. Yeah, that's Hermaphroditical. Yes. Feminine. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> But, um... Jesus is a femme, you're saying. Yes, but that's good, too. We also like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's just saying that there need to be some, you know, soft, yielding, friendly, maybe intellectual guys <laughs> who then, you know, hook up with the incredibly muscular harponeers. Uh, like, I, you're not wrong, but I think it's also very weird that we're talking about God here. Yes, yeah, no, that's... That is definitely present. It's reminding me of a, a book I recently became aware of, which is called, uh, uh, like, None Know This Man or something, or The Man Nobody Knows, which was a 1930s ad man writing a book about how Jesus was actually this super fit, muscular, advertising-type dude who just, like... Um, Absolutely, like, you know why uh, Jesus was able to chase the moneylenders out of the temple? He fucking fought them. (laughs) You know what? He spent his days, like, going on walks around his favorite mountain lake and carving as a carpenter. Jesus was ripped, and the reason why Pontius Pilate said, Eke homo, you know, behold the man, was he was like, damn, behold the man. (laughs) Like, that's the actual thesis of the book. Oh, that's Um, incredible. Yeah, no, I, I read some excerpts from it recently, and, you know, as far as horrifying uh, American takes on Christianity that insist on a particular hegemonic ideal of Jesus that has very little to do with the actual religious movements involved and very much to do with an American sense of masculinity, it was definitely the funniest. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Okay, no. Ishmael's is the funniest because Ishmael's is significantly weirder than that. Yes. And, like, in a good way. Ishmael's is the most enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Anyways, we've gotten past our, um... Our uh, soft curled Christ. <laughs> yeah, curled—such a weird word there. Well, I think he means like curly hair, you know. Oh, oh! I was imagining that he meant like, like Jesus was like curled over, curled I mean... over, like was was like gesturing in a feminine way. And I'm like, what does that even mean? A curled Jesus? Is he like rolled up? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... So, uh, uh, if you want the worst thing it made me think of, it was the, the snail women in Bloodborne. Oh, God. Yeah. Soft, curled, hermaphroditical. <laughs> snail Jesus. Sneezes. Uh, Anyways, that's awful, and I'm sorry. So, 
the next bit uh, is he describes uh, uh, the five great motions of the whale's tail. Oh, yes. Five great motions are peculiar to it. Um, and I also I want to note that he says that it's even when the whale is clearly enraged, there is a grace to the tail. Um, it is, you know, no matter whatever the mood it be in, its flexions are invariably marked by exceeding grace. So these motions aren't just like pleasant and friendly motions. Some of them are quite vicious. Yes. Yeah, uh, so, do you want to list them first and then go through them? Yeah, I think so. So uh, the five great motions are uh, first, when used as a fin for progression. So swimming. Second, when used as a mace in battle. So smacking. Third, in sweeping. I, Damn it, he got there ahead of me. I wanted to try and find like an S word for each of them. Oh. Swimming, smacking. The third one's just sweeping. I can't. Ishmael beat me to the punch. Uh-huh. Fourth, in lobtailing, which is uh, slapping. Well... Is... Yes, it's like slapping the water. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and fifth in peaking flukes. What are you going to do with that? Uh, uh, look, I gave up after three, and now you're asking <laughs> me to get the fifth one. I don't know what to do here, Mark. All right, all right. So um, You're asking a lot of me. So, uh, so the way that uh, whales use their tails to swim... Um, the, the leviathan's tail, being horizontal in its position, the leviathan's tail acts in a different manner from the tails of all oh, other right. sea creatures. It, it never wriggles. In man or fish, wriggling is a sign of inferiority. Okay, I just want to stop here and say, wriggling is a sign of inferiority in man or fish is a shit post. <laughs> this is remarkable. Like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> First of all, all fish, like, wriggling. Secondly, I'm just imagining Ishmael accusing someone of wriggling. <laughs> like, oh, you're such a wriggler. <laughs> it's an inferior thing. You shouldn't wriggle. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm Ima suddenly self-conscious. Do I wriggle? <laughs> is this a thing I do that I need to be concerned about? Imagine saying that to your cats when, like, they're trying to get away from you and you're oh, trying to take them God. somewhere. Yeah, no, they should... They should stop wriggling and just let me, like, move them around like pillows. <laughs> well, try telling them next time. Man or cat, wriggling is a sign of inferiority. <laughs> see how they, see how uh, they respond. Yeah, no, I, I will. I will. I just... Uh, wriggle not, my friend, <laughs> lest ye be inferior. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and he describes the actual motion by which the whale swims with its tail, which is kind of remarkable. Um, it, like, curls it under the body and then snaps it back. Yes, that's, he says it gives it that singular darting, leaping motion to the monster when furiously swimming. So, you know, I have also seen video of whales swimming more sedately, and they just sort of, you know, they do a, a standard, like, dolphin uh, kick. Yeah, like, they, they kind of undulate. Yeah, undulate. You might even say they... Wriggle? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be a sign of inferiority. So, you know, he's, he's expressing the forceful whale, but yes, they also... Uh, smoothly undulate through the water. And I think it's fair to say that Wrigley's may be a more slippery and Fast. rapid motion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as opposed to the slow, graceful undulations of the tail that will send a whale forward at a reasonable rate. Yeah. Um, but he also states that the side fins are only used to steer. They don't provide any, like, forward motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first motion of the whale. Yeah. There uh... will be a test. <laughs> Uh, now we have, uh, uh, attack. Yes. 
Um, uh, it is a little significant that while one sperm whale fights another sperm whale only with his head and jaws, nevertheless, in his conflicts with man, he chiefly and contemptuously uses his tail. Yes. Which, wild. Just like, oh yeah, no, if a whale uh, respected you, he'd use his head, but he doesn't. So he'll just swing his lethal tail upon you. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and supposedly, um, uh, it's possible for, like, whales to strike a, a powerful blow on, on to a boat purely with the recoil uh, yeah i mean i think what he means there is like when you snap a whip the um you don't like just crash it through something like you don't just like if you swing a chain at something you just hit it with the chain right uh -huh. whereas if you crack a whip it's the motion of cracking it that is to say the whip moves it rolls in and then pulls back that imparts to the end of the whip an incredible velocity and i think that's the recoil he's talking about that the tip of the um of the tail snaps across it yes and so the strike doesn't mean the, the whale doesn't just like flop the flukes through a boat though i'm pretty sure that would work mm -hmm. it snaps the tail and then that just absolutely destroys whatever it's touching because of all the force that has been concentrated in that yeah yeah uh he describes it as if it be made in the unobstructed air especially if it descend to its mark the stroke is then simply irresistible. No ribs of man or boat can withstand it. Your only salvation lies in eluding it. So, the dark souls of fighting a whale. <laughs> yes. And like, then it does have another attack pattern. Oh yeah, no, whales have multiple attack patterns, which you must learn uh, so as to be able to successfully uh, hunt them in a boat. Yes. Uh, the other one is that it may attack sideways, and that's... Uh... That's less dangerous. Uh -huh. Yes, because it's, the water resists it, so, and the boat being light will be, like, flung away. And this is actually a good, a little bit of evidence towards why you want to make your whaleboat so light and easily breakable and elastic, is that, I mean, I sort of assumed it was basically, well, they're gonna get destroyed, so you want them to be relatively cheap. But this makes a good argument that, you know, um, when a whale or anything under the water comes up and strikes a light boat, uh, a heavier boat would just shatter but a lighter boat can be flung away by the force. Yes. Uh, and, you know, um, he describes it as, you know, a cracked rib or a dashed plank or two. A sort of stitch in the side is generally the most serious result. These submerged side blows are so often received in the fishery that they are accounted mere child's play. Someone strips off a frock and the hole is stopped. So, you know, you, you pull off your shirt and stuff it in the, the broken hole in your boat and then you keep hunting the whale. Yep. But I, I really like how he's like, oh yeah, you know, it'll just break a few ribs, break your boat. If it had been in the air, it would just instantly kill you. But, you know, this is basically just the cost of doing business. Yes. Uh, then the third motion, uh, he referred to as sweeping, which is apparently whales sometimes, like, move the flukes side to side on the surface. Which he speculates is a sort of, uh, is a kind of, like, tactile I was just thinking of the word tactile. Like, yeah. it's like the whale is groping about with the tail to feel around for things. And he, you know, he says, um, he thinks that the, he has no evidence for this, but he thinks that the sense of touch is concentrated in the tail for the whale. That it's what, like a hand that uses it to, to feel things out. Yeah, and he compares this to an elephant's trunk and to a specific story of an elephant, uh, which, okay, he says, uh... 
Had this tale any prehensile power, I should straightway bethink me of Darmanodi's elephant that so frequented the flower market, and with low salutations presented nosegays to damsels, and then caressed their zones. Okay, so, first of all, caressed their zones? <laughs> like, you know, I just was being like, ah, the elephant's a pervert. Uh, yes, so, so, the word zone has, like, an archaic meaning of, like, like, waste. Um, I... Like I like I think the I think that there's a Latin word, or maybe it's like it has a Z in it, so it can't be a Latin word. Maybe it comes into Latin through Greek. I'm a word that means like belt. Oh, okay. I can see how belt, which is a boundary or like a divider, and zone could be etymologically related. But I did not think that that was just like oh, the elephant's grabbing them around the waist. I was assuming the elephant was just groping them. Well, okay, so, 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 yes, <laughs> zone means, like, waist or, like, girdle. Um, yes. However, first of all, caressed their zones 100% sounds like a shitposty way of saying it was touching their breasts. Yes. Also, okay, there is... I'll just read the, the Power Movie TikTok com citation again. Okay. Darmanodi's elephant. Scholars don't know the source of this name. I think he just made up the name Darmanodes. Really? Ishmael, what are you doing? But the story recalls one in Plutarch's Moralia, in which an elephant falls in love with a flower girl and caresses her breasts with its trunk. So zones, that is what zones mean. 100% we are talking about a pervert elephant here. Uh, well, you know, um... As long as the damsels are okay with it. I... I... Mm, we have no way of knowing. <laughs> okay. Sure. Our podcast is officially on board with elephant damsel love. I did not say that. You... You're... I'm just saying that at no point is he presenting this elephant as doing it aggressively. I'm not saying we have to be on board with this. This could be a deeply immoral moralia. I just don't want to think about renegade pervert elephant, okay? Yeah, yeah. I'd rather think about how, apparently, the whale's touch is so delicate and so, and the whale is so focused that if it sweeps and it, like, he says, touches even a whisker of a sailor, uh, woe to that sailor, whisker and all. Presumably what he means is that it'll feel out for a boat or a sailor, and if it feels anything, wham, dead, destroyed, yeah. terminated. <laughs> Anyways, we've moved on from zones. <laughs> so, uh, now for... Uh, oh, he does also mention that uh, he sort of pities whales do not have the prehensility of a of an elephant in their trunk, that they cannot crest sailor's zones. I mean, that they cannot uh, remove harpoons, because an elephant, apparently, in some story, could remove uh, arrows that had been shot into it with its trunk, whereas a whale cannot remove the harpoon with its tail, which would be significantly more useful for it yeah yeah so now here we are at lobtailing yep yep uh which is basically uh raising the tail out of the water and smacking the water yep the thunderous concussion resolves for, resounds for miles i also really f love this description of uh if you you know catch a, if you find a whale that doesn't know you're there in the middle of the ocean uh you find him unbent from the vast corpulence of his dignity and kitten-like he plays on the ocean as if it were a hearth and that's just really cute and now i'm just thinking of my cats as whales <laughs> yeah um 
it's interesting. He, he categorizes this as, as purely a form of play. And I just realized we might actually know something more about this behavior. So now I'm, I'm going to try to look into it. Um, uh, Wikipedia uh, suggests that uh, this is an activity common amongst active cetacean species, such as sperm, humpback, riding gray whales, uh, but still occurs occasionally among other large whales. It does uh, actually sound like we don't really know what lobtailing is for. Yeah. Um, like it might be, it makes a loud sound, so it uh-huh. might be a kind of communication. Um, uh, it might be a hunting um, uh, a hunting display that uh, frightens fish into schooling, making them easier to scoop up in a whale's mouth. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay. Uh, maybe it is for play. Like we don't really know. Yeah, no, it's, look, whales are mysterious and complicated. Uh, also, I really love the metaphor he uses here, which is, you would almost think a great gun had been discharged, and if you noticed the light wreath of vapor from the spiracle at his other extremity, you would think that that was the smoke from the touch hole. So, like, the idea being that the, the blow, the, uh, blowhole's, uh, vapor is the, like, uh, the smoke from where you put in the, um, the light on, I think, a flintlock? Uh, yeah. I think or a cannon that you light with a, a taper. Yes. Uh, and fifth? Yes, uh, finally. Um, turning flukes. Uh, which this is... is... Go on. Do you want oh, to? Oh, well, or? just this is, this is what whales do when they are preparing to dive. Yes, they, they thrust their tail up into the water and... Or up uh, into the air. Or, sorry, yes, up into the air. Whoops. Up out of the water is what I was meaning to say. They thrust the tail up out of the water, and so it's like this graceful curve. And frankly, if you've ever seen, like, a, a nature video that is a brief clip of whales' tails, it's this... Yeah. That's what you're seeing. He describes it as this incredibly, like, graceful and sublime moment. The second second only to the sublime breach somewhere else to be described in this book. So we get to eventually hear what breaching is. But for the moment, a breach is merely a mysterious reference that will titillate his 19th century audience who know little <laughs> of whales. Yes. Um... Um, but I do two things. One, yeah, I agree. This looks really cool. Uh... The, the flukes in the air as a whale dives, from every image I've ever seen of it, looks incredibly majestic. People take photos of it, like, against a sunset, and then that's just, like, that's just uh, computer background material. Yeah, just yeah. Just incredibly straightforwardly beautiful. Uh, I also can't help but think of, like, because he describes a bunch of them doing it once together. I can only think of, like, synchronized swimming from, like, an old movie <laughs> where a bunch of people stick their legs in the in the air as they go under. Sure. <sighs> and and this uh for ishmael this site uh makes him think about like depending on his mood about the devilish or the divine um yes he says uh out of the bottomless profundities the gigantic tail seems spasmodically snatching at the highest heaven so in dreams have i seen majestic satan thrusting forth his tormented colossal claw from the flame baltic of hell but in gazing at such scenes, it is all in what mood you are in. If in the Dantean, the devils will occur to you. If in that of Isaiah, the archangels. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, suggests, having seen them in this, you know, vast sunset moment, a, a, a pod of whales um, peaking flukes, um, it seemed to him that at the time such a grand embodiment of adoration of the gods was never beheld, even in Persia, the home of the fire worshippers. Uh, so he, he claims that this makes him think that whales are devout. Yes, yeah, and he also compares them to, uh, elephants again. 
um, because supposedly there was a there was a, a claim that elephants were the, the most devout of all beings and that they uh, hailed the morning with uplifted trunks. Uh, and then that kind of leads him to be like, oh, mm, I have compared whales to elephants several times, but I need you to understand that elephants are much smaller and less impressive than whales. Yes, yes. Whale, you know, elephants have trunks. Very nice. Whales' tails, much cooler, larger, and more important. Uh, elephants are, you know, um, just... They don't rate. Uh, he describes, you know, for as the mightiest elephant is but a terrier to Leviathan, so compared with Leviathan's tail, his trunk is but the stalk of a lily. And here's my question. Have you ever seen an elephant, Ishmael? <laughs> Have you ever interacted with one? Because, like, you're saying a lot about elephants here, and I don't know that you've ever interacted with an elephant, even a little. Like, you know, he's he's really happy to say something like, the most direful blow from the elephant's trunk was the playful tap of a fan compared with the measureless crush and crash of the sperm whale's ponderous flukes. I uh, mean, okay, I am willing to believe him that an elephant is not physically capable of, like, overturning a boat. Yeah, I mean, oh, I'd like to see an elephant try since they're pretty strong and resourceful, but, okay, I guess I'm the elephant defender today. Look, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I... Look, I... I'm not saying that elephants are larger than whales or more dangerous. This is... Other than the fact that a whale can't get you if you stay on land, this is clearly untrue. Yes, but no, I definitely agree, like, elephants are cool, and Ishmael's need to denigrate everything that is not a whale in order to prop <laughs> whales up is ridiculous. I, it's just mostly, I don't think Ishmael's ever interacted with an elephant, and that that's why I'm so, like, he's so vehement that you can only understand the whale or speak of its grandeur if you personally have gone whaling and experienced the whale. But the elephant, which he knows entirely through, like, Pliny or whatever, um, not at all. The elephant, you can totally know from books. And this is specifically interesting to me in part because uh, having done a very interesting course on medievalism and sort of like things that appear in medieval manuscripts, there's a really interesting essay about the elephant in medieval writing because it was an entity that was totally unknown that they were trying to understand through references from like Roman texts in like old English writing. So the elephant has previously been the unknowable behemoth of the land to writers in English, and Ishmael poo-poo's all that, because no, it's Leviathan that is the unknowable beast of the sea that is profound and unknowable, and it really is just a perspective question. You could just as eat I mean, okay, you could not have written Moby Dick about elephants for a number of reasons, including the lack of an I mean, I guess if you wanted to go after ivory, but it's not like an industry the way whaling is. But I just think that on a literary level, elephants can stand in for the unknowable and distant thing in nature. Maybe not as well as whales, but Ishmael's really giving them short shrift here. Yeah, I think that's fair. Anyways, this is just, a, this is an entirely, like, you know, graduate student-esque, obnoxious nitpick, given that everything he makes comparison to in terms of the physical and general qualities of elephants and whales is totally fair. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I've sat on an elephant. Whales are bigger, as far as I can tell, and much more impressive and unknowable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he wraps up the chapter, suggesting that there's uh, still more to say about the gestures of the whale's tail that he cannot communicate uh, that is wholly inexplicable. Um, uh in an extensive herd, so remarkable occasionally are these mystic gestures that I have heard hunters who have declared them akin to Freemason signs and symbols, that the whale, indeed, by these methods, intelligently conversed with the world. 
Yep. Uh, nor are there wanting other motions of the whale in his general body, full of strangeness and unaccountable to his most experienced assailant. And I just want to point out the use of assailant here. He's, he's framing, you know, he means someone who's, you know, assaying a, a, an understanding of this thing. But, uh, no, I think he means hunter, no, like I think attacker. He, no, what I was saying is I think he means both. Mm. I think he means, I think he's conflating the desire to understand the whale with the desire to pierce the whale, to intrude upon it, to uh, harpoon it, as it were, and bring it out with a fish hook. Yeah. That's, that's, the metaphor has gone through the whole book. Yeah, um, yeah, that's fair, that's fair. And, uh, you know, this idea that there are secrets and mysteries of the whale and his motions that, basically, I've described all this, don't think I understand the whale, let alone you. Yes. The whale cannot be understood. Dissect him how I may, then, I but go skin deep. I know him not, and never will. Yes, uh, and he uh, he compares he compares the whale to um, God in Exodus, uh, saying, uh, "Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail." He seems to say, "But my face shall not be seen." But I cannot completely make out his back parts and hint what he will about his face. I say again, he has no face. So yes, there's this interesting little conceit where he talks about how the whale has no face which i you know i've said the whale has no face that's not like how a whale's head works so how can i know the face of the whale how can i really understand the whale you know in again he's referencing exodus which is specifically god telling moses thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen yeah like that that's specifically god to moses so it's not just like a general statement to um to the world that god is mysterious it's to a literal prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, this does give me the very funny image of uh, God on... Is it, is it Mount Sinai where the tablets are handed down? Uh, I... God talking to Moses, and he's just standing facing away, and Moses being, like, slowly trying to circle around, and God just turning so his back <laughs> is constantly facing Moses. God. I, I realize that's a very silly image, but I feel that's in keeping with the general style of the, not pathetic, but like the ameliorating way that Ishmael returns to the sort of funny and the amusing and humorous in order to add a little bit of levity and add a little bit of sort of, you know, a sense of humility almost to these discussions of the unknowability of the whale. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, but he does end with, I say again, he has no face, which, if you want an ominous sentence, that really is one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, there was a lot about the fountain and the tail. Um, just two chapters, not a super long section this uh, this week, but I think there was a lot there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad we did it this way. And we definitely would not have had time. Like, this would have gone on to, like, maybe three hours if we'd gone through the Armada. Yeah, no, we shouldn't have done that. Yep. I'm glad we're not doing that. And the cats are waking up, so maybe that's a good sign also to uh, to end the episode. Yeah, yeah. What tune is it we pull for, men? A dead whale or a stove boat? So? I was so? Edi- <laughs> I was editing this episode, and I realized that we completely forgot to say what uh, modern science knows about what whale spouts are made of. Uh, we set it up, and we said we would say it at the end of that chapter discussion, and then we totally forgot to. Turns out they're vapor. Ishmael's right. Yes, he was totally correct about that one. Yep. Uh, it's just condensation from their breathing out of air. It's not actually water from inside the whale being spouted out. Yep. We could have just said Ishmael was right. 
because he's right. Ishmael's always right, you know? <laughs> always. Every time. About whale anatomy? No, he's not. Infallible. <laughs> About everything. You just gotta accept Ishmael. Anyway, bye bye